Thanks for downloading the Sciatica podcast. I'm Tom Jessen. This week's conversation is with Anina Schmidt. The conversation takes place after Anina's online course, which I attended today, and we discuss the mechanisms behind radicular pain, trying to work out what happens, where, um, and when, and in whom, and all those things, trying to build up a picture of what's going on in someone's body when they have radicular pain. Thanks to Morton, Bruce, and one anonymous reader who submitted questions, uh, which I put to Anina. I'll put the timestamps for our conversation in the show notes so you can find any questions that particularly interest you. And I'll also put links to some relevant papers and some relevant pictures in the newsletter uh, to accompany the episode. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Tom. We've just finished your uh, online course. Was that your first online webinar experience? or? Yeah, so it was my first, so not first online webinar and also not my first online course because funnily enough, I was just teaching a couple of weeks ago to Finland. But funnily enough, people were in a room all together and I was online <laughs> on the screen. So that was quite different. So yeah. today everyone was in a different time zone and different yeah. country. So that was the first for, for a discourse. Yeah. And it was a very well-informed course. They all, had, they all knew all the answers to your questions and they exactly. all had some very intelligent questions for you as well. Absolutely. I think it was a great, great bunch of people. And, and you know, I mean, I, I was a bit worried, you know, if you, if you do something online, you never know what, what comes back. Um, sometimes you can touch it a bit better if you're there in person, but it was a really, really great group of people, actually. Great questions. So, yeah, enjoyed it. <laughs> and as I say, some, yeah, great questions. And I asked, I think, one or two, but I saved kind of some of my maybe more obscure or unusual questions for this, um, just because if any of them are really bad, I can cut them out and pretend I didn't ask them. Um, so are you ready to get going, get started? Perfect. Yep, ready. Let's start with maybe one of the easier ones. So my understanding is that not all sciatica is neuropathic and not all carpal tunnel syndrome is neuropathic. And my understanding is that that's because um, some of what's classed as sciatica will be more like a somatic referred pain. A lot of it will be kind of what you call neural mechanosensitivity. And then there's a kind of third group that we call radicular pain. And I'm wondering if that third group, radicular pain, would you say the overlap between that and neuropathic pain is, is, is complete? Is all radicular pain neuropathic? Exactly. I mean, if you look at the original description of radicular pain by, you know, Boktuk, like in 2009, he published a nice paper, I think, which is still probably the kind of terminology that at least we follow, and, and I think many others as well. In, in that kind of paper, he was talking about ectop, ectopic activity at, at the dorsal ganglion level. And 
you know, this is obviously clinically, you, you, you can't decide whether that is present or not, but that is absolutely a neuropathic pain kind of mechanism. Yeah. So ectopic activity at the level of the dorsal root ganglion, that is not going to cause nociceptive pain. So we have, uh, and, and it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very good question because it's, it's, it's quite unanswered. And in fact, um, we have just um, been appointed by the Neuropathic Pain Special Interest Group from the International Association for the Study of Pain to shed a bit more light on these kind of radicular kind of symptoms because everybody interprets it differently. I personally would argue that radicular pain by definition is actually neuropathic. Now, what is neuropathic? Is that enough if somebody just has paresthesia? Or is it enough if somebody just has burning? Or does it need the full-blown kind of picture? That is completely unanswered. And you know, if we look at the grading system for neuropathic pain that was published by IAS, then then quite many radicular pain patients are not even classified as neuropathic pain because it needs some kind of sensory loss, which, you know, as you, as you might know, clinically is just quite often not present, right? So a radiculopathy does not necessarily mean or has to be there for radicular pain to be there. So this is what we actually hope to clarify over mm-hmm. the next, I would say, one and a half, two years or so. <laughs> um, my feeling is, and that is my opinion, that Radicular pain can absolutely be neuropathic and that the grading system that we currently use that quite heavily relies on certain signs might just not be sufficient um, to, 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 you know, to, to diagnose that neuropathic pain. Think about, um, you know, patients who have radicular pain and a motor, motor loss. Um, so technically, by the grading system, they would not be classified as neuropathic because it needs a sensory change. But, you know, a motor change is a clear change to the nervous system. So this grading system obviously, obviously was, was kind of um, made for more kind of, you know, systemic polyneuropathies, etc. And I just believe it doesn't reflect very well what happens in patients. So in short, my opinion is that radical pain really is mostly neuropathic pain, mm-hmm. just that it can be quite difficult to where do we set that limit and that definition. Mm. And I suppose that's made easier by the fact that you make a distinction between radicular pain and this other category of neural mechanosensitivity, which actually a lot of people, they won't do that. Um, They'll only have radicular and somatic, which I think is when the boundaries start getting blurred. So it's probably, yeah, that, that category of mechanosensitivity helps to make things a bit clearer, at least conceptually. I'm glad you mentioned ectopic impulses um, because that's kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I've just been reading, as you meant, the Bogduck paper, but also some of DeVore's work. I don't know if that's how to pronounce his name. Yeah, DeVore. Yeah, that's right. Um, great, great kind of work there. Yeah. He talks a lot about ectopic impulses. And as you said, clinically, there's not really a way to say this patient has ectopia, ectopic activity. I wondered if you had uh, an impression from your work and your experience of how often people with radicular pain have these abnormal impulse generating sites in their nerve root. Yeah, so it's a difficult question because indeed, as you say, it's quite difficult um, clinically to, you know, to be 100% sure this is from an ectopic impulse site. But technically, if it's an ectopic kind of pacemaker, probably we would expect 
sometimes spontaneous pain, sometimes a bit out of the blue, which can absolutely happen in neuropathic pain patients or radicular patients, right? They're sitting there, they don't even move or do anything, and all of a sudden they cringe on the, on the chair because it just shoots down their leg. So that, I would say, is probably reflecting something like ectopic impulses. Um, then, you know, kind of electric kind of shock-like pains, I would say, would fall into that category paroxysmal pain they usually label it in research which patients um don't you know you know the term that we use with patients of course so i would say it's not very common in let's say in carpal tunnel syndrome i think it's less common than in proper radicular pain sometimes you know night pain can be a bit something like that as well potentially you know, how do we know? I mean, night pain could be ha- could have an ischemic component, could have an inflammatory component, but these things together can activate an ect- ectopic impulse generating site and therefore can um, make this kind of, you know, pain that all of a sudden starts by three mm. o'clock in the morning or so. So I would say there are certainly clinically, I see patients where I would absolutely think that sounds absolutely ectopic. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you also mentioned today on the course that, uh, or maybe it was in the, the, the pre-reading, that you think that's a plausible mechanism for why people find themselves in uh, situations of high stress, for example, and their pain increases, um, that some of these ectopic sites can become sympathetically sensitive. Um, but I've, I've read other ideas about that. Um, Dave Butler on a previous podcast mentioned Elspeth um, McLaughlin's work. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that, if you have any idea why people say, you know, I I had a really stressful day and my pain got worse. I think there's just quite many, quite many mechanisms really that can cause that. And certainly... You know, in neuropathic pain, ectopic generators have been shown in preclinical work, and not in humans, um, to have certain receptors that interlink with the sympathetic nervous system, so adrenergic receptors, for instance, that can be triggered by by things that have nothing to do with thermal stress or, you know, mechanical stress, etc., but quite a lot of these kind of, you know, knowledge definitely comes from um, preclinical models. I guess I can't quite remember, but what Dave, Davey was probably referring to from Elspeth McLachlan's work, she was, by the way, my supervisor for oh. my um, PhD. Um, she did this amazing study where she showed um, some basket formation of TH-positive um, fibers, so sympathetic kind of fibers in the dorsal ganglia, um, and that in nerve injury, they seem to form these kind of baskets around uh, neuron, neuronal cell bodies. Again, kind of suggesting that there is, this is in an injury state, so in a nerve injury state, in a pathological state, the sympathetic nervous system um, can directly influence other sensory neurons that are not sympathetic. Um, so there is quite a lot of, um, you know, these kind of literature where there are links um, between between the two. And it probably, I mean, probably go quite long if we discuss all of them. But in in clinics, we definitely do see, you know, if if, if we if we ask patients specifically as well, quite many patients do 
often see kind of when they're stressed that then they just can't can feel their foot go mm. tingly much more closely you know obviously that can also have to do with focus and attention which are more um, cortical kind of mechanisms so that doesn't necessarily have to be physiological at spinal level mm. for instance or a peripheral level um so there's a lot of factors that can influence that you must have heard patients, you know, with radicular pain, they lie down in bed, They've, their foot is actually quite okay, but as soon as they go in bed, they just, they just, you know, yeah. it goes crazy and they have to get up again. Yeah. So what is that? Is that really the sympathetic or is that simply just that the attention shifts and there's no more distraction, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you're in that bed and you know it's already going to come and you're anticipating it again. So, yeah, these are interesting phenomena. Mm. And while we're on the topic of these neuropathic pain mechanisms. I don't know if we could take these separately or together, but I think I'm right in saying compared to other neuropathic conditions, there's less allodynia for people who have ridiculous pain and less wind up. And probably that goes for people with entrapment neuropathies generally. Um, Why is that? Why do these entrapment neuropathies not have the full spectrum of neuropathic features that we would expect? Yeah, exactly. So, so again, this is a very good question and, and probably a bit unanswered scientifically because there was, there's not a real direct comparison. Now, if we look in preclinical models, many of the kind of um, mechanisms, let's say in our model that we have used, preclinical of, of mild chronic nerve compression, are quite similar to what happens in more acute or more severe nerve compression or neuropathic pain models. However, the mechanisms are quite you know, much less intense. So there is inflammation, but much, much less than when you have a much more severe nerve injury, etc. Now, that can contribute to these kind of things, I believe. So let's take, you know, even just um, a phantom limp kind of problem where you have really quite a severe, quite an extensive nerve injury. You have massive deafferentiation, pain potentially as well. That will cause probably quite different mechanism to a mild ongoing kind of compression neuropathy. So that that certainly can play into it. Like these kind of more ganglionopathies are a different story altogether, I believe. So for example, trigeminal neuralgia, post-hepatic neuralgia, specifically affecting the dorsal ganglia itself. And that again um, has been shown in animal models to lead to much more gain of function problems than if you affect, for example, a peripheral nerve like the sciatic nerve or even the spinal nerve or the or the um, um, nerve root. So actually injuring the dorsal root ganglia itself seems to, to make much, mm. much stronger impact. And that's probably not surprising because after all, it's, you know, it's the brain of the peripheral nervous system. So you affect the neuronal cell bodies directly and therefore probably the cascade is, is much more exaggerated in the response. Yeah. So these kind of... Um, things are probably likely to contribute, you know, to the differences that we, we observe between the different kind of conditions. Yeah. On the subject of the dorsal root ganglion, um, it reacts to, sorry, sorry, like a distal nerve lesion, the ganglion will react or will become more permeable um, with potential sort of neuroinflammatory changes. How, and presumably so with like a nerve root injury. So let's say there was a kind of insult to the nerve root and the ganglion is not kind of mechanically bothered. It's maybe a little bit out of the way. Do you think the, the changes in the ganglion 
Is the threshold for that very low? Does that happen just as soon as a nerve is bothered by something? Um, or does it have to be quite a severe injury for changes to the dorsal root ganglia? Yeah, so this is a good question. That was, in fact, the question I asked during my PhD when we worked at, you know, we find that animal model because most model systems that have been used to study these kind of inflammatory changes at the level of the dorsal ganglia after peripheral nerve injury were, in fact, quite severe and acute nerve injury models, which is not at all what we as physiotherapists most often see in clinics, which are mostly mild but chronic kind of nerve problems, you know, excluding the full-blown kind of radicular pain that gets up in the morning and it's just there. Yeah? So that might be different. Um, but yeah, so, so we were kind of asking exactly that question. So if we just have a very mild um, nerve compression, but it's chronically there, is that enough or not to induce that? And indeed what we found in, this is a rat model um, of mild nerve compression, is that this is absolutely sufficient to induce an inflammatory reaction. As I mentioned, this inflammatory reaction in the dorsal root ganglia is not as excessive as after a full nerve cut, for example, or a severe nerve crush, um, but it's definitely there um, and definitely there compared to not, not having an injury or to having a less um, strong injury. So we, we looked at the dose response effect. So if we compress more and more by operating more tight tubes around the nerve, the inflammatory response was definitely dose responding. So the more we compress, the more inflammation, the less we compress, the less inflammation. Mm. What is quite intriguing is that there's also literature out there though, that it might depend on where that injury is in relationship to the dorsal root ganglion. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So there is, for example, studies that suggest that if you're very close to the dorsal root ganglia, that this reaction seems to be exaggerated compared to when you're further away, let's say sciatic nerve, etc., compared to a spinal nerve injury. Mm. Um, so that's that's all quite intriguing, really. Um, so, but overall, to answer your question, yeah, even mild nerve injuries mm -hmm. seem to be enough to create that inflammation at the level of the dorsal ganglia. We also looked further though then at the level of the spinal cord because that's where inflammation is also usually shown in, in kind of, you know, severe injury models preclinically. And when we do a very mild nerve compression, then we cannot find this, for example, microglia changes or astrocyte changes. It seems to need more than a very mild compression to trigger those off. Um, however, you know, occasionally I was probably not operating so carefully or whatever happens. And then I can see that there is a bit of microglia activation. So most likely this is probably, again, a dose response kind mm. of um, story that if you have enough injury in the periphery, something in the central nervous system might be triggered. Preclinical mm -hmm. data purely. Yeah. And as Dan Albright pointed out in his podcast, it's not an on-off thing anyway, that type of thing. It's a, a more or less. And the reason I ask is because perhaps at the risk of being overconfident or pretending to myself that I know more than I know, I like to try to have at least a visual in my mind's eye of what happens to the nervous system when it's in a state of um, ridiculous pain or, and trying to think beyond the nerve root. So if we were to just go distal, more distally still beyond the ganglion into kind of the nerve trunk, and maybe in like the end organ as well, like so the, the muscles and, and the skin. I've seen evidence uh, that there's um, surprisingly few studies of like nerve fiber density for people in ridiculous pain, but there's a bit and they seem to have 
Some people with radiculopathy seem to have loss of nerve fiber density. I wonder how exactly. I should think. Because it's a different nerve, right? If you think mm. if the radiculopathy was properly the nerve root, and, and you can see that in, in the skin, that is quite intriguing, isn't it? So I have to ask you back. How would you explain that, that you can have a nerve root injury, but you see small fiber changes in the end organ? which is basically affecting two different axon systems. Mm. And that was, <laughs> was going to be my question for you. But <laughs> so I, you have to answer it now. <laughs> yeah. um, I think if I were to sort of guess, I'd probably go back to the, the dorsal root ganglion, and obviously that it needs to provide nutrition and support to the nerve. And if that, if that was impaired, then it couldn't do that and it couldn't sustain the distal axons. And then there's also the other thing that I wanted to kind of talk about is, you know, we have this idea of neuroinflammation spreading, whether intraneurally or even through the nervi nervorum and how far that can go distally. Because mm. I sometimes almost have like a cartoon image in my eye of, of it kind of pro progressing along the nerve trunk. And I don't know if that's right, but that would be my guess is that the, the ganglion can't support those distal axons nutritionally. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't know, right, exactly. And I think there's indeed several options that might be the case. It's definitely the case that, you know, there are some studies now coming out that seem to suggest some patients, not all of them, but some patients might have this, um, you know, small fiber changes in the skin after radiculopathy or radicular pain. Um, so to answer your first question with the inflammation, so when we look in our preclinical model of very mild nerve injury, again, in the sciatic nerve, I took the tissue as well down in the tibial nerve. So now in humans, that is probably about a meter apart. <laughs> in the animals, that is obviously much, much closer, but I would say that it's still about two centimeters away from where the nerve lesion is. So significantly away if you think about, you know, immune cell sizes. And indeed, what we did find, even in a very mild nerve injury, that this inflammation didn't stay localized at the compression site, but was present down the tibial nerve. Less extensive, but still there. Intriguingly, it didn't, it didn't travel much proximally, only a few millimeters, maybe two millimeters or so, but not much more. Um, but it definitely, this inflammation was happening distally. Now, quite likely, this inflammation distally happens, you know, there's something that needs to attract the immune cells. And obviously, quite often in a nerve injury, that is degeneration of nerve fibers. So let's say you compress at one side, that induces valerian degeneration of, of the axons that run distally. And that will, of course, attract immune cells all along the distal nerve trunk where these axons are degenerating to gobble up, you know, the, the kind of um, axons. Um, so, so inflammation does seem to spread distally, not so much proximally. And... Um, you could argue that, yeah, indeed, if you have inflammation in a nerve trunk, it might be a bit of a vicious circle of that, again, um, causing some more axon degeneration. Axons don't like an inflammatory environment. But it's probably, I'm not sure whether that is the main kind of reason for it. Um, I'm wondering simply whether it could be that you are killing off some neurons completely. You know, let's say if you have a nerve root problem. So could it simply be that if you have a strong nerve root problem, you basically, you know, affect the nerve root, but you kill off that neuron. If you kill off that neuron, the distal axon that runs into the leg 
will disappear. And that might, of course, show as a small fiber deficit, if that is a small fiber. So that could be, a, could be the case. And the reason why I think it might be, that might be the case is simply because of our data in carpal tunnel patients, where we have looked at regeneration capacity of the small fibers. And we found that even six months after surgery, these small fibers don't, don't fully come back. So that suggests to us that some of these nerve fibers have probably properly died, most likely at, at you know, cell body level. Mm -hmm. And therefore, just don't come back anymore because, you know, how can you regenerate if there's no cell body? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that might be an explanation that you, you indeed just kill off the whole neuron and therefore not just the proximal root, but also the distal axon down into the target tissue. And what you said, I think, is, is very reasonable and, and we don't understand enough about that, right? How, does, how do neurons react to stress? There's quite a lot of, you know, evidence coming uh, from a lot of different chronic kind of conditions where they do find small fiber ch changes in the skin. Um, so, for example, well, fibromyalgia, we just recently showed it in whiplash injury. Um, there's um, data from Gulf War, in, uh, Gulf War um, illness, etc. And Whereas in our study, in, in this is a study by Scott Farrell, um, who has done it, um, she's a postdoc in Michelle Sterling's lab, really, really nice study. And it could be in this whiplash patient that it is indeed the, the actual injury that causes that small fiber problem, but it could be secondary, right? It could just simply be secondary to whatever happens in a chronic pain condition. So stress, you know, changes in inflammatory profile systemically, might affect small fibers. So it could just simply be an artifact that we are seeing in radical pain patients that might not be directly because of something happening to the nerve, but might be secondary. And the only way you can look at that in humans is if you, if you were to take a second skin biopsy in an area that is not innervated by that nerve root that you think has the problem. Mm. And indeed, if then, you know, the small fiber pathology re remains localized only to that dermatome, then yes, maybe then it has to do with that injury. And otherwise, it's probably more of a secondary kind of problem. So that, that still remains a bit unclear. It's a bit puzzling, isn't it? That you can find these changes so far distal in the, in the mm. target tissue, even though it's only the root that is affected. Mm. Do you think we get, we get antidromic impulses traveling beyond the ganglion into the peripheral tissues? and to me, that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem that relevant clinically. We don't see like neurogenic inflammation, for example. So first of all, can we picture antidromic? You know, an ectopic impulse goes both directions, right? So it's going to go distally. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that again comes from more the preclinical literature where they have shown that ectopic impulses can indeed go both directions. And then some, you know, some people have done a lot of work on axon reflexes where they show that, yeah, you can, you can actually get, you know, in an afferent neuron, the impulse is going the wrong way so that they go from, the, you know, from, from more centrally down um, to the target tissue, which is obviously pathological, right? That's mm. not how usually sensory impulses travel. Yeah. And you're right. This is, you know, this kind of axon reflex is, is an explanation for neurogenic inflammation. Um, because, you know, if you have action potentials ending or traveling towards the nociceptors, you can have this kind of um, release of substances. So CGRP, substance P has been mainly looked at in, in, in um, um, preclinical models and there's some kind of um, 
you know, experiments where they can uh, look at micro, um, what are they calling, microfluidic or something, where, where they kind of um, measure content in your skin um, when you, for example, stimulate nerves, etc. Um, so these kind of changes happen. Now, do we see them clinically or not? It's probably tricky to say. I wouldn't think a neurogenic inflammation needs, is, is what we, you know, it's not like a full-blown kind of inflammatory pattern with mm. redness and swelling, etc. So that might be quite sub-threshold. Mm. And you know, some people have argued that these kind of changes in body perception, you know, like say people with, um, um, you know, some kind of neuropathic pain sometimes have this enlarged kind of feeling of the hand or they say it is swollen for example even radicular pain patients sometimes say their foot feels swollen and you look at the foot and you can't see anything right um but that might just be very small changes potentially that we are just not visibly seeing but might might be caused by neurogenic inflammation and many other mechanisms of course as usual so we can assume that it happens but as i suspected it doesn't seem to throw any light on the clinical picture although who knows maybe we will find something out down the line here's a good one it's my understanding correct me if i'm wrong that if you i get i get my terminology mixed up between like what is exactly a nerve blocker but if you, if you put like a local nerve block in the sciatic nerve distally like so like yeah in the buttock, for example then that will often eradicate radicular pain yeah. uh, and there's a review by north um i don't know if you're familiar with it and he, he basically concluded that you know you can put uh anesthetic um around the nerve root in the buttock kind of elsewhere in the spine and it all seems to reduce nerve pain that radicular pain with not much difference which is really weird because you, if we have a lesion at the nerve root, you would expect that you need to anesthetize at least on that lesion or proximal to it, you know, closer to the brain in order to relieve the pain. Yeah. Why does a nerve block? I haven't read that paper. <laughs> Maybe you should send it to me to see yeah. what exactly they did. Um, I would agree with you. Um, usually nerve blocks are obviously done proximal to an injury. Um, and in, in radicular pain, that is obviously you can, I mean, people do epidurals and they put local anesthetics with it, plus the cortisone, etc. cetera. Um, so is it, I mean, I, I don't know, I would have to read the mm. study. So that's quite intriguing indeed. So is it that, you know, how we have just a normal amount of input anyway, and if yeah. you take away that normal amount of input, then the input that comes from the nerve root is just not sufficient anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, this is completely me speculating, though, mm. right? I haven't read the paper yeah. or um, it's kind of mechanisms behind that. And that was the conclusion they, I didn't mean to test you to see if it matched up, but that was the conclusion they came to as well, that maybe you need some sort of background afferent information in order to, which is almost like another strike in favor of peripheralism, if you want to call it that, but that you need that background input to have that experience of pain down the leg. And one of the other interesting theories that's a bit more out there is that it's because let me get this right. The antidromic impulse actually activates nociceptors peripherally, including like nerve exactly. by nerve aurum, and that you yeah. block the antidromic impulse, mm. and, and that that has some effect on the sensation. Yeah, in that case, you could you could easily te- well easily you could test that in humans just by giving local anesthetics in the skin, 
and you would mm. expect if that is the theory then then that would also influence it mm. i guess mm. um, yeah but i'm not i'm not too familiar it sounds like an interesting study i should look at that i mean there's quite a there is several studies right in neuropathic pain conditions if you talk about the peripheral how did you say peripheralization or <laughs> peripheralism um, peripheralism. <laughs> peripheralism exactly and i'm definitely a peripheralist right yeah. uh, you might know even though i i, I highly value my brain uh, uh, my spinal cord but you know there is several papers that suggest indeed in in you know in in different nerve injuries local anesthetic blocks even after a very long time can change obviously short term um the, the pain that patients have so you know, I'm 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 quite I'm quite sure that peripheral input is important um, in in specific in these kind of you know if we talk about nerve nerve problems um, and quite often you know this input we, we know that this input is there anyway right these patients had a nerve injury or still have it etc the nervous system has changed massively not only centrally but also peripherally so you know the complete kind of distinction saying that you know, things in chronic kind of neuropathic pain is purely driven centrally. I just think doesn't make much sense for neuropathic pain, really, because of all the knowledge we have of what happens mm. as well in the peripheral nervous system and changes there. Yeah, but it, in, indeed intriguing if you can block a nerve distal to the injury site and you get the same effect, yeah, that might indeed have, yeah, some of these mechanisms. Mm. Yeah. And probably implications for why injections for piriformis syndrome seem to work as well um <laughs> yeah that'd be interesting isn't it for all the other reasons of perceived <laughs> <Petra>, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah are you advocating that we should do lots of peripheral just inject everything everywhere i think that's my seems <laughs> to work how long is it gonna last <laughs> right? once that once that um local lidocaine injection is uh, um yeah yeah, I'm but gonna, it's right. Oh. I mean, in the CRPS world, there are some some people. Uh, I would say quite crazily, probably making nerve blocks as treatments. As you can imagine, very short lasted, right? Mm. But there are some big player in the field that definitely use that as a as a treatment, recurrent nerve blocks. And you know what? I mean, it gives the patients um, um, a few hours of calm. Maybe that's it. Mm. But obviously, you know, this yeah. is not unproblematic, and yeah. obviously quite heavily debated. Absolutely. Here's one that I can answer, but then I'd like your perspective. And this is from uh, a reader and listener, and I haven't written down his name, I'm sorry. Um, but he asked, is there evidence comparing recovery times uh, for people who avoid painful positions? Com this is for radicular pain specifically compared to people who push through the pain into provocative positions as part of their exercise program. And I can say from my familiarity, I think, with the like clinical literature in humans that no, there isn't. Yeah. I don't think that's ever been studied. And maybe it has for other nerve conditions. I'm sure it has for things like CRPS, but not radicular pain. And I'm pretty sure that Ben Smith's systematic review that said that painful exercise was just as good as painless exercise didn't really include any nerve conditions so that's my perspective but i wondered what your perspective on that is from a sort of neurophysiological and preclinical point of view yeah exactly you're absolutely right right i wouldn't be aware of a study that looked at that specifically in in neuropathic pain or in well in treatment neuropathy specifically 
And indeed, Ben's review, which is a really nice review, by the way, I think, mm-hmm. um, is not specifically in nerve pain. So it's a bit dangerous if we just take that and generalize it to nerve pain. Now, in, I can only answer that from my clinical experience, right? Um, because of the absence of evidence. Um, but um, I do not think it is a good idea in a patient with radicular pain to push through that pain. Um, <clears throat> radicular pain or neuropathic pain, I believe, is quite different to other kinds of pain in terms of what it triggers as well um, in the, you know, you know, all the mechanisms we discussed, right, in the peripheral and central nervous system. Also, I mean, people will quite often report to you that, you know, they are probably quite okay still in the morning, but it quite often kind of accumulates during the day. So doing doing too much is not usually what helps them as compared to, you know, more kind of ischemic problems where they, you know, actually when they get going, it actually gets better, right? Um, So we have to be a bit careful, I think. And I believe if somebody has, you know, a kind of full-blown, nerve root problem, neuropathic pains or radicular pain, um, I usually even call it first aid for that nerve root. But we have to do something to calm this down. And I do not think pushing through postures or pushing through through movements that provoke, let's say, tingling, electric shocks down Mm. the leg is useful. Because you know what? I actually think there is quite a lot of bio in patients with um, entrapment neuropathies that we have to respect and that we have to respect in terms of, you know, wound healing or, or well, that's a problem, right? Nerves, nerves wound healing is a bit complex. Um, but, um, yeah, we have to respect that, I think. You know, it massively depends on the patient presentation, but in these kind of acute radical problems, I would certainly mm. not recommend to push through the pain. I think, I think I would agree. Here's another question from another reader whose name I haven't written down either. I'll have to put it in the introduction. They're wondering from the patient's symptoms and the clinical examination, can we determine what mechanism is underlying their radicular pain? So for example, you know, would we be able to say whether it was a mechanical sort of compression, so they move a certain way and a, a disc or a bone pushes on something, or whether it was more of, uh, I remember they used a specific example of not particularly mechanical pattern, but this pain just seems to spread and creep and stay, stick around. And they were wondering if that maybe means it's more of a chemical cause, like uh, disc fluid leaking through an annular fissure, for example. Uh, you know, you've spoken about ischemic pain already. Do you think we can sort of reliably point to certain mechanisms based on the patient presentation? So again, I, I guess this question, I, from the scientific point of view, unfortunately, I have to answer with, you know, don't don't have evidence for yeah. that. <laughs> um, from a clinical um, perspective, I do believe there are certain patterns. So let's say an inflammatory kind of pattern does look different to an ischemic pattern quite often. And sometimes people definitely present with a very mechanical pattern, right? They are fine, fine, fine. And as soon as they move into that extension, Mm. it just goes down their leg like crazy. And as soon as they move out, it's good again. Mm -hmm. So I do think, um, you know, these kind of patterns can be quite different. Think about an ischemic problem. We were talking during the course about it, you know, if a patient 
who has um, even just carpal tunnel syndrome shakes their hand and it gets better or a patient with sciatica has a foot drop so has a radiculopathy and you do McKenzie repetitive movement and that foot drop gets better I would argue might might be likely to be an ischemic kind of pattern um, rather than anything else if that was a neurological deficit an ischemic conduction block basically um, so I do think there are certain patterns um, but you know what these kind of things often come together and mix and match because these pattern mechanisms often quite linked together anyway mm. so for instance you know if you have inflammation quite often inflammation will cause some demyelination or the Schwann cells not to myelinate normal because they constantly have to turn over myelin. So in an inflammatory environment, these Schwann cells are not happily myelinating. We also know that uh, persistence inflammation can affect axon degeneration, um, specifically of smaller fibers. So there is, these are very tightly linked. If you have um, ischemia, ischemia eventually again will make Schwann cells unhappy, which again will make demyelination. If you have demyelination, you have inflammation. Mm. Something needs to clear off that myelin. So I believe quite often what I see clinically, the symptoms are not following one exact very clear pattern, but has probably a bit of an inflammatory sounding pattern. But on top of that can sometimes be ischemically modulated etc. So I think in clinics, it can be very challenging yeah. <laughs> to, to, to just sort one from the other because they often coexist. And I think this is my second last question. You mentioned, if, you know, we picked up on some of the mechanisms there um, that, as you said, coexist. One of the interesting things is edema. And I, I think as a nerve becomes more edematous, it becomes more swollen, which can almost lead back into it becoming more compressed. And I've read that almost described as like a, a mini compartment syndrome almost. Do you feel like that's a, a common factor in nerve root syndromes? Is this the kind of edematous compression loop? I, I mean, you know, inflammation, I believe, does play quite a strong role in, in the radicular kind of literature. And some people say, yeah, this is because of the, you know, analyst fibrosis, etc. But, you know, people forget that, um, you know, compression itself um, mm. can actually change edema as well, right? Um, so, you know, that, that I think it's a very kind of artificial distinction between is it inflammatory or is it a compression because the two usually come together. Mm -hmm. And if you look in, in kind of nerve fibers, that, in, in, in nerves, in preclinical models that are inflamed, you definitely see the, you know, axonal space, the space between axons gets bigger because obviously there is no space right there's this thing that is edema that we can't image that we can't see yet it's there so i do think um that this is a problem that that potentially can lead to kind of a, a maintenance of, of of this vicious circle if you have intraneural edema you most likely have more compression more compression probably means more breakdown more demyelination more axon degeneration then again more inflammation mm -hmm. so I, I do believe this is quite likely to be contributing uh, in patients who for example don't spontaneously recover after an acute inflammatory kind of incident mm -hmm. um, yeah. and it's an interesting point you make as well because when you read some of the papers that are a few decades old, there seems to have been this idea that's become uh, quite common. You, know, you talk about certain myths like a, a beta fibers are maybe more vulnerable to, and one of them seems to be that you can compress a nerve and it, it won't hurt. It will merely lose function, mm. um, which as you say, doesn't quite make sense if, if it then triggers all those inflammatory uh, changes. 
my final question, and again, I've failed because I, ha I have I've written down the questions without the names of who asked them. But this person is wondering, uh, or wondering if you could talk a little bit about surgery for long-standing radicular pain. And I think the background of the question is that there's this idea that earlier is better. And I think some sort of received wisdom that if you leave it too long, maybe it's too late. But then on the other side of the, the coin is that I think surgeons are often quite happy to operate on people with carpal tunnel syndrome many months into the condition. If someone has had radicular pain for many months, many years, uh, are they still a candidate for surgery, assuming that there's something on the MRI to surgeon out? Yeah, exactly. That's, well, that, that has to be there, I guess, mm. for the surgeon to open up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so this is a good question because indeed in carpal tunnel syndrome, most of the patients, at least in our cohorts, are like two, three years down the track, right? And, and they get operated. And in fact, you know what? The pain, the pain is usually better within a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, which suggests, again, maybe there's still quite a strong ischemic component on top of all the other things. Mm. But the loss of function is a very different thing. Yeah, The loss of function, so that means muscle strength, if it was affected, sensory changes, they have not a very good prognosis anymore. So, I, you know, you ask specifically about radicular pain. So that is obviously pain. Um, and again, there is not... You know, there is not much data specifically on that. We do know radiculopathy. So those with loss of function, you absolutely want to get early. Um, if somebody has a long-standing foot drop and you operate them late, we know that the prognosis is not so good. We know that as well, by the way, from cord equina problems, right? I mean, I'm always amazed that we make that big differentiation between yes. you know, a cord equina problem and, and a foot drop. Yeah. But yeah. Why would it be different in terms of timing or urgency? You know, um, I mean, you could argue bladder is more important than foot, but maybe not for a 25-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, if it comes purely to pain, I, I would agree with you, you know, maybe this should be done and looked at um, what happens in terms of outcome for pain if you operate people later, if they mm. have a correlate, obviously, that, that surgeons are happy to operate on. And if indeed it is similar as in carpal tunnel syndrome, um, I would expect that that probably still could have an influence on pain, but probably not so much anymore or not, not, not a full recovery of motor mm -hmm. function, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Or sensory function. I think that was my last question. And I, I kept <laughs> well, them quite coming quite briskly so that you wouldn't ask me any questions. I see that. So can I ask <laughs> you a question now then? Yes. Why are you why are you so interested in, in sciatica? Um oh good question. Uh, three things sort of jumped to mind. One is that it's kind of one of the I wouldn't say last remaining things. One of the, one of the few remaining things where there's that, there is, as you as you put it. I know some people will will not like this way of putting it, but there's some bio to go with the psychosocial. I think if I was interested in low back pain, I'd be having a very frustrating time of trying to learn more about it. Um, but with ridiculous pain, there's, there's still that kind of nice balance where you can look at all the different aspects of it and be on some certain ground. Um, I, I love um, think like learning and thinking about all the different mechanisms. Um, you know, with, with the, the caveat that you know we don't really know how they go together very well or and in whom. 
I just think it's really interesting how they all feed into one another. And, and as you say, the, the distinctions we make are sort of artificial, um, but that just makes it more, more interesting. And then just the fact that it's, it's weird, isn't it? Like I've had an episode of probably it would be neural mechanosensitivity by your criteria. It's like a, it was before I was a physio, so I don't remember all the details, but with an, an extrusion L5S1 um, and some kind of tugging pain in the back of my leg. And it, it is weird. It's counterintuitive. It's, it behaves oddly. Uh, so there's that kind of element of mystery to it. Mm. Um, and also one more is um, it's kind of a bit of a pain point for a clinician. So if, you, if you're practicing with kind of your regular MSK caseload, it's probably the thing that, that you have least least control over. It's probably hardest to make patients satisfied and happy. Um, so there's just that kind of sense of wanting to do things better and, and improve. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think often when we're interested in things, we just make up reasons. Like I just made those <laughs> up really. I, I'm just interested. I just want to know more about it. And I don't really know why. But yeah, I mean, you, I guess you came from clinics, right? So you, mm-hmm. you probably were exposed to this kind of feeling. I mean, that's at least what it was for me, right? This dissatisfaction of what I could do for for these patients in clinics and, you know, just struggling quite often knowing why is it now not getting better or what, what is happening? Do I have to refer? You know, it's just this constant uncertainty, um, which is not there if you treat the patient with an mm-hmm. ACL injury. It's just not, it's not the yeah. same, right? I shouldn't say that now with all the experiences <laughs> for the listening. Um, but it's much more challenging, right, in these mm-hmm. conditions. And we are definitely not not very good in, in managing um you know, these kind of pains. So, so I think these are very good reasons to be interested in a topic uh, yeah. from a clinical perspective. Yeah. And the more you learn, the more interesting it gets, of course, which is why like, I can take, you know, you start building these networks of stuff in your, in your brain or in your, note, in your notes and maybe read some old paper that you find on Sci-Hub and it actually connects to things in a relevant way and some of the older papers are the best because they mm-hmm. they're more descriptive and they can obviously do stuff that you couldn't do couldn't do anymore as well. Very true, but they were better as well, right? I mean, it, this yeah. is actually a very good point. Um, um, you know, in science now, how we do science is very quantitative, right? Mm-hmm. We have to measure it. If we can't measure it, we we feel bad reporting it because it's an observation. And I still remember Elspeth McLaughlin, right? An amazing physiologist. Mm-hmm. Um, during my PhD, when she taught me how to do these animal models, she always said the first thing you have to get good at is is to actually observe. Mm-hmm. If you can't see a difference, don't even bother about quantifying anything. Yeah. <laughs> and she's so right right um in those old papers people were carefully carefully describing things right and they were probably not missing many things because Mm. they were observing amazingly now you know blaming myself as well and many others we are taking skin biopsy we do quantification of small fibers because that's what we do and then maybe we look a bit as well but you know it's really hard to then describe the other things Mm. um so it's not being described it's not entering the papers it's not it's not going to the general knowledge out there and that is really a lot of loss of information by forgetting that you know Maybe in research, we should not forget to sometimes even just describe a discovery mm-hmm, rather than mm-hmm. just, you know, feeling so paranoid about being able yeah. to quantify everything. Yeah. And so, there's, there's almost like a, 
it's almost like you need permission of of uh, that quantitative outcome, the quantitative results, in order to know something. Uh, I think there's a fear in the atmosphere of of making any assertion that is not um, based on kind of rigorous quantitative data. And I was very supportive of that for quite recently because, you know, I think, you know, you read all these things about how biased people are and, you know, you read Daniel Kahneman and you can kind of be sort of slip into this idea that people can't regard the world with any reliability because we're all hopelessly fallible, which is not true. It's too pessimistic, but that, that can naturally make you kind of want, you know, to fix our biases, fix our fallacies, want this kind of rigorous quantitative data. But then when we did our literature review together, and that was the first time I'd really say like immersed myself in a literature, I was like, well, it's not really that, there's some fantastic studies, but they only tell you a slice of one thing. And, and I started having a lot of sympathy with, with some of the things that before I would have rolled my eyes at, like, oh, I, you know, when people say absence of evidence isn't evidence mm-hmm. of absence, um, that's often used to justify bad treatments. And, but it's completely true. Okay. Um, did I get that the right around evidence of anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah um, no. And I think I started to kind of, coming back to Elspeth McLaughlin's paper as well, which I read the other day. It's about two and a half pages long. And she just says, I did this and I saw this. And it was really interesting. Mm. Um, and it you did, know, I mean, yeah. both of discoveries made, were made like that, right? So mm. I, I would bet with you that at the moment, the way we do science, we miss a lot of things because we don't allow ourselves to actually take a step back and just observe. Um, and, and then follow those observations up, right? Because we are so kind of tied in by everything that we do has to be reliable and proven, etc. And I think it does limit the creativity um, of research um, mm-hmm. somehow. I'm, I'm not against, you know, strict. By no means, I'm a researcher. By no means am I, uh, am I, am I advocating that we should go, you know, and not follow strict guidelines. But it does, I think it does cripple creativity potentially. Mm-hmm. And, and potentially exciting discoveries. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a bit sort of bloodless, isn't it? Which is why I wanted to ask you some of these more speculative questions yeah. as well. Yeah, so I hope I could answer that because a lot of these questions that you ask are really important questions, but really quite unanswered questions mm-hmm. as well, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so not easy questions. <laughs> Hey, Nina, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, especially after a long day of teaching. No problem. Quite relaxed. I'll go out to the sun now with my dog. And And the sun's coming up here as well, so I'll I'll go outside too. What is the time now? Early morning. Uh, It's 8.20, 20 past 8 in the morning. Oh, yeah. So it's it's about the time you will get up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. No, awesome. It was really nice talking to you and keep up the good work. So, yeah, Yeah. it's always very interesting. Thanks, Nina. Speak soon. Speak soon. Yeah, take care. (laughs) 